is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories of people who've risen above their circumstance, risen above adversity. And today we have a story of a woman who's done just that and is now giving back to her community. Take it away, Faith. Nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, difficulty. I have never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. Theodore Roosevelt Trials, difficulty, money shortages, empty fridges, unpaid electric bill, unpaid water bill. These are the realities that many Americans face. Some families face small difficulties. While for others, it involves losing your job, not being able to pay rent, and then getting kicked out of your home or apartment. And according to the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, women and families are the fastest growing segment of the homeless population, with 34% of the total homeless population composed of families. Of these homeless families, 84% are headed by women. Now, being homeless can feel, well, hopeless. But for Vanessa Howard, not only did she work herself out of homelessness, she is now giving back in amazing ways, helping those who have been in the same situation that she has. And how is she doing this? She does this by providing free haircuts and makeovers in her salon called Giving Hands. Let's begin by hearing her tell her story. Now, how did Vanessa end up homeless in the first place? Um, I was actually living with living with my grandmother. My grandmother passed away. My grandmother was like the she was like the backbone of our family. She kind of reminded me of a Mother Teresa. I think I, I think I have a lot of ways like my grandmother in terms of how I give. She would, you know, take in homeless people. She would take in just, you know, she she would give the clothes off of her back. She lived in a project. She would feed everybody, clothe everybody, and whoever had a need, she was there. I was living with her. She passed away. Um, I went through some other things that was very detrimental. <clears throat> so that's that's how I literally became homeless. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely, definitely a, a breaking point. I lost my grandmother and then also um, my children's father portrayed, uh, portrayed me. I mean, uh, yeah, he was unfaithful and it was just a lot to take. She was a homeless single mother with a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. There were many times where she wanted to commit suicide and wanted to end the pain, the hurt. The hurt that she felt from abandonment, from abuse. But she told me about times when she would be crying, when her kids would come and comfort her, tell her that it was going to be okay. Kids understand more than we realize. So in the midst of all of this struggle, she thought to cry out to God. So why was it that she turned there? What led me to, I, I really can't tell you what led me just, just being at the, the, the darkest place I've ever been in in my entire life is really what made me cry out to God. I, I didn't grow up in a church background, so I didn't really, it, it wasn't like I was taught religion or I was brought to church that made me or I was coming back to my roots or anything because 
I wasn't brought up in church, you know. As a matter of fact, part of my life at the age of 12, my mom and my stepdad was, was on drugs. They were strung out on drugs. So um, I really didn't have any background that made me cry out to God. But what I just truly believe in my heart is that it's just, you know, I know we've been created by God. And so I believe because I'm, I've been created by him that what's in me is going to come out. So I believe I cried out because there was really nowhere else to turn. Matter of fact, when I prayed the prayer, I just said, God, if you are real, please help me and my children. After this last ditch effort of praying and crying out to God, something amazing happened. When I got up the next day, I felt like there was hope. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like something happened with that prayer. And I didn't understand it. And I said, well, let me just go do one more try with the little money that I had. And I looked in the newspaper and saw that they were renting this, renting this place. And I caught the bus. And, and, and lo and behold, you know, when I walked in the room, I mean, I just literally walked in the door. And when I walked into the place, the guy, he kind of looked at me really weird, like a double take. And he was like, I don't know you, ma'am. But he says, I feel like you're supposed to have this place. Like something is telling me to give you this place. He's like, it's really weird. But he was like, if you want it, you can have it. He didn't ask me to fill out an application or anything. As a matter of fact, I didn't even call the man back for two weeks and he still held the apartment for me because I was afraid because I didn't have all the money. And so I called him during the time where this lady was kicking me and my children out at two o'clock in the morning. I called him up and, he, and I was crying on the phone and he was like, ma'am, I've been holding this place for you for two weeks. He was like, you know, you told me you want it. I told you you can have it. And I told him, you know, I was homeless and me and my children are being kicked out right now on the streets. And he was like, well, just if you can find a way to get to the apartment now, I'm, I will give you the place. I will, I will meet you over there and give you the, the keys to the apartment. And I literally had to hold back tears because this man, he doesn't know my situation. He don't know that I'm suicidal. I was just blown. I was blown away. And I had been looking for places. Nobody would rent to me because I didn't have any background or you know, I didn't have a job at the time, so nobody would give me anything. And so I was looking for a job. I mean, everything was just falling apart in my life. And so, like I said, I prayed that prayer. The very next day, I felt different. I can't even explain. I just felt different. I felt like there was hope. And after moving into this apartment, her life continued to change. I moved upstairs and I believe that God moved, I believe that was the door he opened for me because I moved upstairs to a minister and they started doing Bible study with me and um, yeah, well my life was, there was something else to the story, my life was almost taken, I got in a relationship with this guy who tried to kill me and finally got prayed and asked him to get out of my life, he didn't want me to go to church and, and there was a minister that lived upstairs and she literally started um, teaching Bible study out of her house, you know, to me. And I would go up there and, and um, so once, you know, he was out of my life and I was able to really, really dedicate my life to Christ. And when we come back, more of Vanessa's story and faith plays such a central role in so many American stories that we put it right there too, whenever it should be there. More on Vanessa's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Vanessa Howard's story. She's the owner of the salon called Giving Hands, a salon that offers free services to the less fortunate. We left off with her recounting how she pulled herself out of homelessness. Let's return to Faith and her story about Vanessa Howard. So she got off the streets and got her life back on track. But how did the salon get started? And how was it that she started doing hair? I've always been gifted to do hair. I've, I've always did hair, did family members hair, you know, back when we lived in Wisconsin. When we moved here, it's when, uh, and as a teenager, you know, if I can go back, you know, I did want to always, I said, I always want to own a salon, a beauty salon and, and everything. And that was kind of like a part of my dream. And I just kind of let it go because my life just took a turn. Yeah, so when we moved here is when, you know, the Lord spoke to me and said, um, I want you to, you know, go to school and get your, your license and go to hair. And he said, and then that's when he started giving me the name of it and, and the vision of it and the purpose of the salon and everything. And and so I was like, okay, you know, and so um, um, that's when, you know, Giving Hands Beauty Salon, I actually worked at a few salons prior to starting opening up the salon. Yeah, so I opened up the salon of January 2014 and May 2014, he told me to start. And I didn't have a clue of what I was doing. I didn't know, you know, I just know what he told me to do and I just kind of went as I, you know, I just kind of did it. I didn't have like a full blueprint of how, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't know, I just knew. He told me to just have these broken women come in and children and, and the youth. And he said, I just want you, I want you all to just pour love upon them. The women come in and get makeovers, their hair done, nails, eyebrows, and whatever else that they need in order to feel beautiful and confident. You know, we spend about anywhere between six to eight hours with these women. Uh, building them up, building their confidence, their self-esteem, praying for their needs. You know, we have a 98% success rate in terms of the women have gotten jobs and homes after leaving uh, the spa days. And so, yeah, so we do a full cater lunch every single time. We always, you know, we, we, we make sure we feed them really good. We have break bread and have lunch with them and talk with them. And then we start the services on them. And, you know, we try to serve them hand and foot. We literally try to lay the red carpet out for them because they are, although they're going through what they're going through, you know, um, they are loved and they are they are somebody, even in that estate. And that's really my point that I'm trying to get out because I didn't have that support. I didn't have somebody telling me that they love me and telling me that, you know, that I'm beautiful and that I'm special or I'm this or I'm that. I didn't have that. So I want to make sure that doing, the, this, doing their transition that they have that and while Vanessa did not have that support she wants to make sure others are getting what they need to overcome their difficulties that's pretty incredible Vanessa shares a story of a woman who came to receive this service and continued to keep up with them after so most of the women who come to the to the, to the give back or to the spa days most of them come and they of course they're in the, they're in the shelter they don't have they, um, they don't have jobs, you know, um, they don't have anywhere to stay. So, um, so they, most of them interview after coming. That's why I said um, one shelter gave us the success rate and said, first of all, when the ladies leave, they're like so overwhelmed with, so, they said they never felt so, so loved. 
and they come back and they tell all the other women and they say they go and all these interviews so confident and so built up. I have a few, several women that I still keep in contact with and one of them actually volunteered um, with us. She's a part of the team now. And one of them actually got, they got a job and um, at a radio show and her first, her first guest, she had me on. And I was just so blown away because I'm sitting across from her with the same one that we, you know, we helped, we prayed for. We, she not only got, you know, she got a job and she's like running this radio station. And I was so honored because she said she wanted me to be her first guest. And this was the same lady that came in so broken, so hurt, um, had been a part of the uh, abuse in relationships and domestic violence. And, and just to watch her just a couple months after coming here just flourish. It's amazing. And one of the most amazing things that the salon has done for women is encourage and empower them. And sometimes it is done with just one word. There was a 62-year-old lady that came to one of our events from one of the shelters. And I have a habit of calling women beautiful. It's just what I do, you know, because I believe all women are beautiful inside and out. And I said, you know, my, my um, volunteers kind of say what I say. So the, the lady walked in and she literally was only in the salon maybe about a couple minutes. We had just greeted them. I talked to them about giving hands, uh, the foundation and everything. Um, told them why they were there. We were just there to love on them and to serve them today. We want you to relax, make yourself at home. So everybody was hugging. You know, my volunteers always, always hug the ladies and, you know, love on them and tell them, hey, beautiful, how are you? You know, you're so beautiful. And they always call them beautiful. And the 62-year-old lady, I was set her down and do her eyebrows, and she just started bawling, crying. And I'm like, well, what's wrong? What's wrong, love? You know, what's wrong, beautiful? She was like, you're not going to believe this. She's like, I'm already full, and I've just gotten here. She said, if, if the rest of the day is going to be like this, she was like, I, my cup is going to overflow. She said, you're not going to believe this, but I'm 62 years old, and I've never heard those words directed to me. I've never, I've never heard anybody call me beautiful, you know, and so it reminded me literally of where I come from, not really getting that support outside of my grandmother. I just, oh God, I'm tearing up. It just broke my heart, you know, this lady is 62 two years old and nobody's ever told her, she's never heard those words direct, you know, personally said to her. You know, the need out here is just so great. And through these acts of kindness, Giving Hands Salon is meeting that need. In light of what she has been through, Vanessa offers all of us some perspective on those around us. But you know, sometimes in life, we, you know, we stay in our little small worlds and we stay in doing our own thing. It's just about me and mine. And we forget about this big world that people are out here and people are hurting. People are going through. People are struggling. People are, you know... Um, a lot of women, you know, are masking with just outer beauty and within they're broken, you know, they're hurting. They, you know, they look good on the outside, but the inside is just so empty and they don't feel love. They don't feel like they're somebody, you know, and so that's really my mission. My mission is really to bring people to Christ and allow them to experience the love that he demonstrated to me 25 years ago. And um, that's my mission. That is my mission is really to build one soul, one person at a time, you know, and, and to share that, that, that love, share that love. It gets even better because this is not just Vanessa's service. Her whole family is involved. 
Her kids and her husband are immensely supportive and have a heart for the homeless as well. And they don't plan on it ending here. Vanessa Howard, in light of all of her difficulties, has a vision for an even brighter future. So this is not just, you know, a give back. It's, it's, it's my ministry as well. I want to, my, the bigger picture for this is I'm going to open up my own shelter. Um, I actually had a vision while I was homeless of a shelter. God took me into an open vision and showed me this shelter. I firmly believe that everything that I've been through, every tear, every cry, every hurt, every pain, you know, it, being a, feeling abandoned, uh, even, you, you know, and not accepted even by my mom. I know that all that has have a purpose. There is in every woman's heart a spark of heavenly fire, which lies dormant in the broad daylight of prosperity, but which kindles up and beams and blazes in the dark hour of adversity. Washington Irving. Vanessa she knows and believes that her pain has had a purpose. And it most certainly has. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that, Faith. And thank you, Vanessa, for teaching us all about the role and reminding all of us about the role that faith and love of God has for so many Americans. And what a, what a life-saving ministry she's in, engaged in now. I never heard anyone call me beautiful, one of the women that she tends to said. Just imagine that. And that's the kind of story we bring you here on Our American Stories, uh, stories we hope that'll make you laugh, think, or cry, and we never avoid the hard ones and the sad ones because right on the other end of that pain and loneliness was the purpose for Vanessa and for any of you out there who are going through hard times, at least for many of us. There's refuge in God, in friends, and in total strangers. This is Lee Habib, Vanessa's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now we bring you Harlan Lebo who's written a terrific book 100 Days How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. In his book he talks about Woodstock, the moon landing, the creation of the internet and what we'll be discussing today the Manson murders. In 1969 all of these things happened within 100 days of each other and none of them were related. And by the way, if you'd like a copy of Harlan's book for yourself, you can find it at Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, or at 100daysbook.com. That's 100daysbook.com. Let's start with 
who Charlie Manson was and what this thing called the counterculture was. Because in the end, as I read your book, I learned Manson wasn't really a part of the countercultural movement. He just sort of jumped into the middle of it and sort of adopted the, let us just say, image of being a countercultural person. That's correct. The, the, every, every age, every society, every century has its counterculture of one kind or another. Uh, and the 1960s produced its own kind of counterculture, in many ways a rejection of the ideas that it had developed in middle-class America in the 1950s. In other ways, just the fact that more people were going to college or had more free time on their hands because they didn't have to start work at 16. They could study longer. Uh, they had time to think, and they had time to come up with new ideas. And for many people, that just made them more thoughtful about their lives and what they wanted to do. But for many, it led to a rejection at one level or another of the traditional culture and political values of the United States. Um, starting with political expression, the free speech movement, which started at UC Berkeley in the early 1960s, creating a platform at colleges for students and others to become more vocal about what they believed in. And that led to more social uh, social change in counterculture that were came through the 60s, whether that was changes in clothes, changes in attitudes about what people wanted to do with their lives, how they wanted to be different from the people who came before them. And that led for many people to a counterculture lifestyle, which we would generally call a hippie culture, but it was really just more a counterculture, a 1960s counterculture, where it was young people, for the most part, it being challenged by a very challenging age uh, and very challenging issues, all coming together to not necessarily reject the previous life as it was, but to want to have new roles for themselves and new ways of doing and seeing things. And all of that became a, became quite centralized by protest in the United States over the war in Vietnam, because pretty much everybody believed that the war, or a growing number of people believed the war was a mistake. Younger people especially, who had much more at stake, uh, because they might have gone, had to go off and fight the war. But any everyone at the time either was at risk of being drafted and going off to war, or knowing someone who had gone off to war, or even worse, knowing someone who had died or was, or was wounded in the war. And that became the center of American social protest, of counterculture, that evolved most vividly in what we would again call hippie culture of the late 1960s, the summer of love in 1967 in San Francisco. Uh, but it was all based very much on love and peace and you know, smiling on your brother and finding new ways to being a better person. Charles Manson had none of that in mind. He was a petty criminal his entire life. He was a social outcast. He was a sociopath. He had served way more than half of his life in jail at that point. So when he finally did get out of jail on parole he, in the late 60s, he went to San Francisco because he had nowhere else to go. And he would have likely found some people to follow him in any, in any era, but he was able to prey on some of the some of the young people of the 1960s counterculture who felt particularly rejected, particularly unaccepted or misunderstood by their families and had left and were on their own and they found a messenger and a leader in Charles Manson. 
And as a sad result of that, several of them became involved in the more violent activities that Manson proposed in the summer of 1969, which is what led us to the first weekend in 19, of August of 1969 and two nights of murder and seven dead in uh, Los Angeles. Indeed, you wrote about Manson. Under the skin, he was a hunter, a diabolical, methodical wolf welcomed into a flock of vulnerable sheep. And these women were indeed vulnerable sheep. Let's talk about them. Uh, let's just go through Leslie Van Houten and, and Suzanne Cosgrove, who you start in, the, in, in your chapter, Mesmerized. You start with those two women. Why? Suzanne Cosgrove is, a, is an old friend of my family. She wound up, not she was not a Manson follower by any means, but she was a vivid example to me, as I saw her later in life, of what it could be like if her life had turned in a different direction. Leslie Van Houten was a follower of Charles Manson. She was one of the people involved in the murders on the second night when Rosemary and Lino LaBianca were killed at their home in August of 1969. Uh, but Leslie and Suzanne were almost exactly the same age. They came from the same part of the world. They actually lived in the same neighborhoods together. But one of them managed to, managed to survive all of that, uh, including being rejected by her family. She managed to survive all of that, Suzanne did, while Leslie did not. And Leslie was the one who wound up in the Manson family. So I just used Suzanne as a contrast to Leslie Van Houten. A dramatic foil. And you write, in the late 1960s America, recruiting women was easy. There were many who had lost their way, stalled in life by rejection and a lack of direction. Bringing in men was even easier. With a clan of women willing to do Manson's bidding, he would pimp his most attractive family members. He called them... Front Street girls who willingly offered themselves as bait to attract men into the group. Um, talk about uh, Ch Charles Tex Watson. He was one of those men. Yeah, Charles Tex Watson was the sort of the senior male figure other than Charles Manson. We'll call him Tex Watson to not confuse the two Charles. Um, Tex Watson was a football player from Texas. He was a seemingly normal person got caught up in the Manson way, got caught up in the drugs. And that really was the, the potent combination, was the, the use of both finding social rejects who needed someone to guide them and adding to that uh, drug, drug use and primarily LSD. The, the, the personality, the psyche becomes very vulnerable under the under the influence of psychedelics, and particularly LSD. And Tex Watson became the primary leader, other than Manson, the hitman uh, who went out and led the murder, uh, the murder plots uh, the first weekend in August of 69. Um, but he, he, was one of the, he was the senior male among many men who were brought into the Manson family. And a lot of the men who got brought in were just there for the women. They, they, they took no part in other things in any of the crime. They were probably, you know, petty criminals themselves or uh, drug users. But Tex was heavily involved, and he, of course, is now serving a life sentence as well. Indeed. And let's uh, talk a little bit about the events that led up to uh, what happened. But before we do, I just wanted to read one thing. To leave was to die, Van Houten remembered Manson saying. And I held on to that, and I'm sure when the guys came to get me, I felt my feet were in cement, that fear of what would wait for me by leaving the group was what kept me attached to them. This was a little cult in the end, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. They were attached philosophically to Charlie. 
they had nowhere else to turn to. They felt that they were understood and loved and respected by Charlie. And that combined with the drug use and role-playing models and other psychological transformation techniques that Manson used for months and months really made them slaves to his, to his view. And you've been listening to Harlan Lebo, whose book is 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. And by the way, you can find that at 100daysbook.com. That's 100daysbook.com. You can also get it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Heck, maybe even buy a book. More on Our American Stories after these messages. And we continue our conversation with Harlan Lebo. The book is 100 Days. The subject right now, Charles Manson and the Manson Murders. What's remarkable about this story is that he ends up hanging with some really important people in the music business. The next thing you know, he's hanging out with them and auditioning for a record deal. Uh, Talk about that. Charlie always had a dream of being a musician. He learned how to play the guitar in prison. He fancied himself as being one of the next great American musicians. And that all came to a happy coincidence for him when some of his some of the women that he had had set out to ensnare men along the way managed to ensnare Dennis Wilson one of the primary performers in the Beach Boys uh as a result many of the women and Charlie wound up living at Dennis Wilson's house i mean let's face it they were there because they were allowed to stay there because Dennis got free sex out of the whole thing but it was also Charlie's opportunity to try to worm his way into the music business. And he did try some writing with Dennis Wilson. One of his songs was sort of modified by the Beach Boys, and they actually recorded it. Uh, And then later on, other people have recorded his songs. But at the time, he really felt destined to be a major musician and tried very hard to be one. Uh, And that was, in many ways, when the downfall started, when it became clear that that Dennis Wilson and others involved in Hollywood they or in the music scene thought that he was okay, but had nothing really great to offer and didn't really have a future in the business. And that's when Charlie started to turn toward other things. And one of the other things he started to turn toward was his concept of Helter Skelter, the great race war that his, his family would then somehow in his own disturbed way, he believed that somehow out of that race war, he would come to lead And who knows what that really meant. What was going on inside his head, I don't think anyone will ever know. But let's talk about how he ends up in the Hollywood Hills and talk about these two events that shock the world and shock a nation. Well, as part of Helter Skelter and the idea of creating, and again, this is all Manson's disturbed philosophy, but his idea was by creating a race war, by sowing the seeds of a race war, that somehow that would leave enough chaos in the United States that his he and his people would come out of that somehow in a more powerful position. And when it was clear that uh, race wars needed to somehow be started, he decided that by killing several families of white people in Hollywood would that could be somehow led back to black killers would be a way of doing that. So it didn't work out. I mean, it was a terrible plan, and it had, there was no real reason to think that it would lead back to to black killers. But 
that's in large measure why he sent a team to the home of Sharon Tate on the night of August 8th, and they killed the five people at the house there. And then the next night, with a slightly different group, including Leslie Van Houten, who was the, one of the featured people in the book, they went on the next night to the home of Rosemary and Lino Lombianca in the Silver Lake District of Los Angeles and killed them there as well. And that was all supposed to lead to race wars as he saw them. Uh, of course, it didn't, and it's ridiculous, and it's tragic, but that's what he had in mind. And let's talk about the press coverage of all this, because it was, well, it was a frenzy. And you wrote, the press coverage reinforced again and again what large numbers in America wanted to believe, that the murders were part of the love and peace generation gone horribly wrong. Many times the case was covered under the headlines that contained the words hippie trials. But again, these weren't hippies. Any more than the Symbionese Liberation Army was a bunch of hippies. No, and that's it's always been that way from the start. And if you can look back or you were part of that time, you know that pretty much anyone who had long hair and a beard and didn't look like they had bathed recently was considered a hippie. And that really was the model of everyone within Charles Manson's family, that they were viewed as hippies. Well, they weren't. They had nothing to do with it. Love and peace clearly had nothing to do with what they had in mind. But the vast majority of America that, was, that felt it was part of the counterculture had nothing to do with Charles Manson and never did. Uh, but the way it was positioned in, as you said, in the media coverage of the trial, which occurred, you know, a year later, or almost a year later. And then when Charles Manson was finally arrested uh, three months after the murders and then wound up on the cover of Life magazine, uh, it was all positioned as sort of part of the love and peace generation gone horribly wrong. Indeed. And there was another real character working his magic in San Francisco at the time, too, and that was Jim Jones. And yeah. Jim would do the same thing, exploit a lot of these naive young peaceniks and draw them into, well, because they were lost, draw them into perhaps one of the world's worst cult suicides in history. Maybe only ISIS and some of the, some of the radical Islamic terrorists match what Jim Jones did to his own people. Yes, I think it's important to remember that, yes, they both preyed on peaceniks, but what they were really preying on were people who were lonely, separated from their families, misunderstood, rejected by people that were supposed to be part of their lives. That's why my friend Suzanne was saved. Her family had rejected her completely. Her family did not understand her. They had their own problems uh, with alcohol uh, and just a lack of sympathy with everything about young people in America. But she was, in a sense, adopted by a family, uh, uh, some cousins of mine, which is how I knew Suzanne, and they essentially saved her. Suzanne has always thought that she was saved by that, and that she and she lived with him for more than a year. Uh, but that was a, uh, a real turning point. Well, she had that opportunity. She had the opportunity to be loved and cared for. So did Leslie Van Houten, but she was being loved and cared for by a maniac. And that's... The result of what happened is the murders. Indeed, I'm going to read, and this is Manson talking about his role in all of this. He says, I haven't got any guilt about anything because I have never been able to see any wrong. I have always said, do what your love tells you, and I do what my love tells me. Is it my fault that your children do what you do? What about your children? You say there are just a few. There are many, many more coming in the same direction. They are running in the streets and they are coming right at you. After his rant was over, you wrote, he told his co-defendants, you don't have to testify now. 
And by the way, the world covered this. I mean, this is, again, where if there is a media bias, and some of us, many of us believe it may tilt to the left, but the bigger media media bias is the sensational and the blowing up of the sensational uh, because it it just makes money for folks. Uh, Talk about that. Yeah, well, in this case, uh, they didn't have to blow anything up. I mean, it was was three women and... Through, they were as essentially the leader and three disciples. Tex Watson was was charged separately, and he he was had his own trial later. So it was really only Charlie and the three women who were involved in the murders who were on on trial that one time. And it couldn't have been a bigger fiasco or a bigger circus than you could ever imagine. You got this wild fanatic leading these three women who were blind in, in their following of him. When, when he carved a swastika in his forehead, they carved swastikas in their foreheads. You know, when he shaved his head, they shaved their heads. In fact, all of his followers shaved their heads, including the, the band of four or five of them that were on vigil outside the courtroom on the street in downtown Los Angeles the whole time during the case. So there was plenty to cover, uh, and it was an endless series of Manson spouting in court, being dragged out of court, uh, trying to attack the judge, uh, outbursts of every kind. Uh, It couldn't possibly have reinforced for those who wanted to be reinforced with the idea that this was the love and peace generation gone wrong. And of course, it had nothing to do with that. Indeed. And and just as a side note, because you're a student of the media, uh, to some extent, so many people watch these things. When there's a mass shooter and the mass shooter's name goes up there, that's what the mass shooter wants. When Manson carves a swastika, he wants that attention. He wants that headline. And to what degree do we think the media can actually feed something? There are things called copycat killings, imitation killings. There's actually been some real great research done on this. And that's one of the things I found interesting about this, this crime was just the amount of ink and time spilled on it because it was the first big mass media murder. Yes, and, and that's, that is the not the mystery of Charles Manson, that's the legacy of Charles Manson. Uh, He had a message, and he conveyed that message very well. He has lasted for 50 years as part of the American experience because he had a political message and a voice that, that he wanted to, that people were willing to cover. That's why his name and Helter Skelter will probably be remembered forever in the history of American crime, while most other uh, tragic figures who have been mass murderers or serial killers have have long since faded away. I mean, Richard Ramirez, you know, the the Night Stalker murderer. No, no one really knows anything about Richard Ramirez and barely even remembers his name. But because Manson had a political voice, because he had a message he wanted to deliver, that is going to resonate possibly forever. And during his lifetime, any time he was willing to talk. There was some media outlet that was willing to listen. It's so true, because you point out, and I'll leave with this, Manson also represents a troubling reminder that a murderer with a political message can live forever. Consider that on October 1, 2017, Stephen Paddock massacred 58 people and wounded more than 400 in Las Vegas by shooting them with semi-automatic weapons, the deadliest mass shooting in American history. Yet there are no Paddock t-shirts anywhere. No. And there never will be. In fact, his name is pretty much lost. Las Vegas isn't, and the victims are remembered. But his, we still don't know why he did what he did. He didn't leave a note. He had no political, he had no political message to deliver. And as a result, who can who can remember his name other than the people who tragically were, 
were wounded by him or those who lost a loved one because of him. But Charles Manson continues to resonate, and it's completely self-feeding. The, you know, the, the more he talks, the more, and the more media were willing to listen to him, the more publicity he got, and the more people were willing to look for things to say about him. And that just went on and on for his entire life. Indeed, right up to his death. And you've been listening to Hall and Lebo, and what a remarkable story the Manson murders were. And by the way, get 100 Days, How Four Events in 1969 Shaped America. You can find it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or heck, go into a bookstore and buy the book and read it. Hall and Lebo's story, 1969, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and today we have something very special for you. Our grand executive producer, Most Up High, brings us an hour of radio so compelling, so riveting, so challenging to the status quo. The seas may burn and nations may fall due to the sheer complexity and profundity of this topic. Here's Jesse. Listen, do you mind if I offer you a suggestion? Oh, I'll take any advice I can get, Dad. There is a famous old story about a man who had to get up and speak in front of some very important people. He was petrified. I'm with him. Yeah, but a friend gave him some advice. He says, look, when you get up in front of those VIPs, you picture them sitting there in their underwear. In their underwear? (laughs) (laughs) Mike, is that true? Sure it is. Worked like a charm, too, because it made him realize that his audience was only human. I mean, you can't be very frightening in your underwear. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. You should see me in mine. (laughs) Underwear. We all wear them. Most of us do, anyway. Uh, Boxers, briefs, bras, drawers, breeches, knickers, long johns, lingerie, brassiers, bloomers, bras, corsets, and panties. Yes, I said it. Panties. What exactly was the undergarment just referred to? Panties, Your Honor. Do you expect this subject to come up again? Yes, sir. Of course, the story goes back at least as far as Adam and Eve. You know the story, hanging out naked in the garden when a talking snake convinced them to eat forbidden fruit that made the otherwise happy couple feel painfully self-aware of their exposed reproductive organs. Enter the loincloth made of fig leaves. The first documented pair of underwear. I think. This is by no means a scientific study of underwear, and I'm prone to embellishment, so just pay attention and enjoy the ride, okay? Eventually, people graduated from the fig leaf to a cloth loincloth made of wool or linen. Now, silk loincloths were for the wealthy, but people who wore them were constantly mocked by the working-class wool and linen loincloth crowds. Try saying that ten times fast. By the Middle Ages, the loincloth had evolved into a baggy-fitting trouser-like garment that I won't try to pronounce. Fast forward a few hundred years with the invention of the cotton gin during the second half of the 18th century, and cotton fabrics were everywhere. By the early 20th century, the mass-produced undergarment industry was booming, and underwear advertising first made an appearance in the 1910s. From the battlefront to the fashion front, and there's no smokescreen here. It's a West End show, sheer nylon underwear, new-style elasticated girdles and brassiers, everything to delight the eyes of women. Not that the men were exactly bored. Here's a nightdress with a difference. Or what about this? Its title is gorgeous, and we can't think of a better. Overskirts to be worn with panties and girdles were a feature of the show. 
In the 1920s, manufacturers shifted emphasis from durability to comfort. Rich, heavy satin is the material in these oriental-style pajamas, completing a short glimpse of a pageant we could have watched for hours. But modern man's underwear was largely an invention of the 1930s. On January 19th of 1935, Cooper's Inc. sold the world's first briefs in Chicago. The company dubbed the design the Jockey, since it offered a degree of support that had previously only been available from the jock strap. Jockey briefs proved so popular that over 30,000 pairs were sold within three months of their introduction. And thus, modern underwear as we know them today was born. Of course, there's a little more to the history of underwear than that, but I'm not here to bore you with those details. What about the underwear of the future? Do you come from a land down The market has certainly come a long way from the World's Fair in 1930. I've never seen purple underwear before, Calvin. Calvin, why, why do you keep calling me Calvin? Well, that is your name, isn't it? Calvin Klein? In fact, sales of underwear can be seen as an economic indicator. It may be silly, but former Federal Reserve Chief Alan Greenspan says underwear sales are a great economic indicator. Underwear sales are usually stable because men need them. But during really tough times, men may wait longer to buy those Tabasco trousers. When Anna Garcia's husband lost his job, new briefs went bye-bye. He would rather buy a pair of jeans or a new pair of shoes than his underwear, because that's the last thing I guess you can see. <laughs> underwear alone in the U.S. is a 15 billion plus market per year in terms of revenue. You see, the future of underwear is now. At no other point in the history of the universe have we had access to such a bountiful and diverse supply of the world's finest undergarments. New underwear startup companies like MeUndies, Tommy Johns, and Mark Weldon are booming. Joel Primus is the president and founder of Naked Brands Underwear. Um, I was filming a documentary through Central and South America, and I came across a pair of underwear in Peru, and... And the fabrics were incredible, and it was something that I'd never experienced before. At, at that moment, I didn't think I'm going to start an underwear company, but for some reason, and call it a miracle or act, I don't know, but um, I put, I bought five pairs of this underwear, and I just put them in the bottom of my backpack, and I carried them around for a couple months as I was traveling. And even when I got home, I didn't do anything with them. But I was so determined to create, to make something of my life that I had heard some success stories about some, some fashion startups and, and all of a sudden that thought of the underwear popped in my mind. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an underwear company. Yes, underwear. Changing economies and changing lives. When we come back, the Great American Underwear Hour returns with the answer to the age-old question, boxers or briefs? Plus, more on the word panties and why so many people cringe when they hear it. Also, we'll hear from the founder of Spanx, who turned $5,000 into a billion-dollar underwear empire. All that and so much more coming up right here on Our American Underwear. Uh, Our American Stories. Did you see what's going on here? <laughs> No box.
jockeys. There's no jockeys. Oh. The only thing between him and us is a thin layer of gabardine. Kramer, say it isn't so. Oh, it'd be so. Oh. I'm out there, Jerry, and I'm loving every minute. our American stories and before we return to the great American underwear hour with Jesse we first wanted to vamp a little bit because in this segment we have what we call a hard out you see the length of the segment you're listening to right now is 11 minutes in length but our set piece that you're about to hear is only 10 minutes and two seconds long which means I've got to fill 58 seconds so that the song that gets played at the end of the segment ends at exactly 11 minutes. We're only about 30 seconds into this segment right now, which means we have about 28 seconds more to fill. This is great radio, don't you think? You're really going to enjoy the rest of this special on underwear, the entire hour-long underwear. That's right. Is it time yet? And a lot of women ask, well, what do men want from their underwear? What is important to us? From And I'll tell you what we want. We want the same thing from our underwear that we want from the women in our lives. We want a little bit of support, and we want a little bit of freedom. Yeah. That makes sense. That's all it is. Makes sense. Welcome back to the Great American Underwear Hour. Did you know that by the year 2021, Amazon is projected to generate $62 billion in annual apparel sales? Of course you didn't. According to OneClickRetail.com, the 2016 top-performing apparel items on Amazon.com were all in the underwear category. Here's the top five sellers. Haynes Men's 10-pack of crew socks at number five with 850K in sales. Haynes Men's top 10-pack of ankle socks at number four with $900,000 in sales. Haynes 5-pack of boxer briefs at number three at $1.10 million. Dickie's 6-pack of Tri-Tech crew socks at $1.15 million. And in at number one at the top five Amazon.com 2016 top performing apparel items is... A drum roll, please. Uh, can I get a drum roll, please? And in, number one on the top five of Amazon.com's 2016 top performing apparel items is Hanes Men's 10-Pack Ultimate Crew Socks with $1.25 million in sales. Men's underwear has been the biggest area of growth for the online retailer in recent years as Amazon is expected to surpass Macy's, becoming the biggest apparel seller in the United States in 2017. Spanks are another brand of underwear that have risen to monumental popularity in relatively recent underwear history. Founded in Atlanta, Georgia, Spanx specializes in underwear intended to make people look thinner. I'm not fat. I'm big boned. Sarah Blakely is the founder of Spanx. She started this billion-dollar undergarment Goliath of a company with just $5,000 in savings. Sarah would find her inspiration in a place that she holds dear. 
Actually, my own butt was the inspiration because as a woman, I couldn't figure out what to wear under my white pants. So I, I don't know if Warren's had the same problem, but um, a lot of women do. And I felt I was a frustrated consumer that had no business background and no retail experience, but I knew there was a void between the traditional underwear and the heavy-duty girdle. And so that's sort of the moment that happened was so that I could wear these pants that hung in my closet. So Sarah did what anyone in a similar situation might. She took out the scissors and went to town. I just cut the feet out of control top pantyhose one day and realized that that worked better than anything I could buy on the market as far as smoothing and getting rid of any blemishes or panty lines, but they rolled up my leg all night under my pants. So I went home that night and said, I've got to figure out a way to comfortably keep this just below the knee. Necessity is the mother of invention, but capital is the father of production. Sarah Blakely worked odd jobs to get the cash she needed to start the company. I sold fax machines for seven years. It was basically uh, my only job pretty much out of college and, you know, was cold calling for a living. I got kicked out of businesses all the time for years and I, you know, did that until I cut the feet out of pantyhose. So I had $5,000 set aside in my savings and when I came up with the idea, I just went on the internet and started researching hosiery or shapewear. Where does this stuff get made? How does it get made? And that started my journey of you know, Spanx. I, I found out that most of it was made in North Carolina. So lucky for me, it was close enough to where I was living. I could drive there on weekends and take vacation days and go during the week. After success, Sarah's attention turned to growth and teamwork. The first two years, I was very involved in every aspect of selling it, marketing it, you know, trying to wear all the hats because I couldn't afford to, to hire anyone. And then I always say that when I could afford to hire my weaknesses or mm -hmm. the things I didn't enjoy as much, which are usually the same thing, I did. And I hired a fabulous CEO, and she's been with me for 11 years. And so that was a very critical moment for Spanx to recognize, okay, this is where I can, where's here, these are my gifts for the company, and here I need to... Um, find someone who can really manage the day-to-day -day and the operations and we've been a good team. So our friend Sarah here lived happily ever after with her billion-dollar underwear empire. Here's her advice on being successful. What you don't know can become your greatest asset if you will let it, if you have the confidence to say you know, I'm going to do it anyway, even though I haven't been taught or, you know, somebody hasn't shown me the way. And I, I actually talk about that a lot now within Spanx. I always bring it up with the team and say, if nobody showed you how to do your job, how would you be doing it? Just take a minute, go to that mental space, because nine times out of ten, you'll come up with a better way. But we're all on autopilot. A lot of times we're just doing something the way someone else showed us. So the fact that I'd never taken a business class, I had no training, I didn't know how retail worked, I think I was probably not as intimidated as I maybe should have been had I known all the research. I mean, I went into an industry that had been on a 15-year decline. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. You know, within um, a few weeks after I made my invention, I called Neiman Marcus on the phone. I didn't know any other way. And then I ran into all of these people that have their own products, and they would say, how in the world did you get into Neiman Marcus? And I would say, I called them. <laughs> and they would literally look at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, why? What do you do? And they go, well, we've been going to trade shows for six years, setting up a booth and hoping the Neiman's buyer comes by and that we get our shot. And I didn't even know there were trade shows. So that example throughout the whole process of Spanx just worked in favor in a lot of, in a lot of cases. 
Now that is truly an inspiring story. So inspiring that I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> That's right, underwear. You know what makes me feel good? Curling up with a good book, pumping iron, maybe later. <laughs> and these little numbers. Yeah, fruit of the loom panties. Sure, they're lacy and pretty, and show a lot of leg. But the way they feel, that smooth, soft fruit of the loom cotton moves with me, hugging every little curve and the not so little curves. Now save up to twenty dollars on select fruit of the loom products. Buck Weimer is the CEO of Undertech Corporation. My name and my title is uh, Buck Weimer, and I am the CEO of Undertech Corporation, and we manufacture under-ease underwear for flatulence. Yet again, necessity being the mother of invention, it's also the mother of fun little stories like this. So I was a, a psychotherapist at a hospital where I work, and I was recently working with some coal miners who um, went through a disaster, but they were wearing gas masks. So I figured, well, if they could filter out the toxic gases, I must be able to get a filter that could filter out the bad smells of, of flatulence. So Buck went to work on proof of concept with his odor-proof underwear. One night after some a very large Thanksgiving meal and all the gas was coming up and I was looking for a solution on how to solve this. So I noticed that all the gas was coming up towards the nostrils rather than out the side and the bottom, which is where the blankets hang over. So I thought, well, if I could direct the gas in a pair of underwear to go through maybe some sort of filtration process, that that would work. Buck went on to obtain a patent on his odor-proof underwear and even appeared on the TV show Shark Tank, though none of the sharks actually invested in the product. I have absolutely no context for bringing you this story other than the fact that we're talking about underwear. And Buck makes underwear that masks the smell of your farts. When we come back, boxers are briefs. And why is the word panties so terrible? Plus, what does your underwear say about your health? We'll hear from top experts on what to look for. All that and so much more coming up on the Great American Underwear Hour. And here is the one and only singer-songwriter-comedian Rodney Carrington with the underwear song. This is Our American Stories. I went to the neighbor's yard sale to see what I could find. I found me an old pair of underwear hanging on a clothesline. Ask an old woman in a lawn chair how much you want for them drawers. She said if you're willing to touch them, them nasty things are yours. They've been hanging out in the backyard since 1985. They were my husband's favorite pair when he was still alive. They're stiff as a board and mildew, and if you wash them, they'll be fine. They got skid marks up to the waistband, but they ain't no worse than mine. I hope the boys at BVD can see me wearing these. They just might find it in their heart to give me a pair for free. Yeah, Well, they are my favorite underwear. Wear them every day. I use tape from Scotch to repair the crotch, but I get blisters that way. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
This is Our American Stories, and we continue now with our special on the life of underwear. Here's Jesse. A shotgun Willie sits around in his underwear. Biting on a bullet, pulling out all of his hair. A shotgun Willie's got all of his family there. Welcome back to the Great American Underwear Hour. Perhaps one of the most hated words in the English language is the word panties. I don't know why. In fact, I'm so uncomfortable saying the word, I'm just going to turn it over to YouTube blogger The Nerd Bird to explain it for us. I hate panties. Not the garment, the word. And it's not just me. I've noticed that women the world over dislike this word. I think the main reason why people don't really like it is because it conjures up images of being a little girl. Because when I was a child, my mom referred to my underwear as panties. As in, don't forget to change your panties. And that's why when I see it or hear it, it makes me go, oh, gross. It's in TV shows and movies. It's in songs. It's in books. Oh, it's in a lot of books. The most frustrating part is that there are way better words out there to use instead of panties, like underwear or undies, which is my personal favorite. Knickers, underoos, I would like to propose that the word panties be taken out of the dictionary altogether. If we could just cease using it from here on forward, it would make me, and a lot of other women, pretty damn happy. I think we can all agree to that. While we might not have the ability to strike the word panties from the American lexicon, at least we can strike the word from the rest of this show. The Great American Underwear Hour will henceforth abolish the term panties for the remainder of the broadcast. Starting now. Now that we've got that out of the way, it's time to answer that age-old question of boxers or briefs. Now, before we give you the answer, let's see what people on the street have to say about this debate when the guys at UnderwearExpert.com asked that very same question in the streets of Hollywood. Hey, man, what's your name? Eli. Eli, how old are you? I'm 18. Al Underwood. Al Underwood, how old are you, Al? Uh, 52. 52? Chris. Chris, and how old are you, Chris? Uh, 28. John. John, all right, what do you do, John? Teacher. You're a teacher. What do you teach? Uh, P. I'm a uh, marketing consultant for the art of shaving. I work at Pizza Hut. What are you wearing today? Boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs? Boxers or briefs? Boxer briefs. Why? Uh, they uh, they keep everything cool, separated, you know, snug. Boxer briefs. Boxer briefs. Why? Because it's still kind of uh, long and it's not embarrassing like tidy whities but it keeps everything secure. Boxer briefs. Boxer briefs. Yeah. Why is that? Because they're snug. They look great when you take them off. Then girls go, ooh. I got on some briefs. You got some briefs? Yeah, the boxes kind of let everything swing too freely. Here it comes. <laughs> Boom. Boxer nice. briefs. Yeah. Boxer briefs. All right, what brand is that? Rockaway? Uh, I think so. Is that your favorite brand? No, no, no. Favorite brand? Calvin Klein. Hanes. Hanes? Yeah. Go to. I like all my undergarments. I don't spend any money on. You got a favorite brand? Uh, Ralph Lauren, yeah. Ralph Lauren. You know, keep, keep my guys cool, you know, and uh, just really freely flowing. Uh, they're very comfortable. Uh, Some girls see a difference. I really don't care. Uh, jungle Green is my favorite, yeah. Excellent. What does that say about you? I don't know. I'm a wild man. <laughs> I like it clean and neat. It's perfect. So what do men prefer in terms of sales? Boxers or briefs? Well, it turns out the answer is both. The boxer brief hybrid is the dominant form of men's underwear with a 40% market share. Jonathan Shokrian is founder of e-commerce underwear company Me Undies, and he just might have one of the most interesting jobs on the planet. 
Designing and marketing underwear, he also takes pictures of women in their panties. Someone said panties. I know that I said we wouldn't use the word panties anymore in the broadcast, but I lied. Sorry. Someone said panties. In 2011, at the age of 25, with $400,000 of startup funds raised from friends, family, and angel investors, the MeUndies founder set out on a mission to disrupt the way underwear is manufactured and purchased. I'm Jonathan Chokrian, and I'm the founder and CEO of MeUndies.com. When I was 18, I moved to Dallas for six years to go to school and work for my father's real estate company. First, I was just really doing management. And that literally had to do with anyone calling and complaining about a roof leak to a, you know, a backed up sink or you know, all the problems that you deal with in that regard. But then eventually I learned a great deal on how to manage people, how to like keep costs low and run a company. While I was in high school, I had a cousin who would sell electronics wholesale. I came up with the idea of taking his product and listing it on eBay. We were one of the top 200 sellers on eBay. Once he figured out kind of how to run it, he quickly kind of got rid of me. So it was a really early lesson on like how business works and the good and the bad that comes with it. Jonathan Shokrian and his company Me Undies is currently selling around 5 million units per year. So far, we've heard from several successful underwear entrepreneurs in this hour-long celebration of undergarments known as the Great American Underwear Hour. Lawrence Ferlinghetti is an American poet best known for A Coney Island of the Mind from 1958, a collection of poems that has been translated into nine languages with sales of more than one million copies. And when would be a better time than now than to hear his poem about underwear? Underwear, yeah, underwear. That's a serious subject, underwear. I haven't, I, I uh, didn't get much sleep last night thinking about underwear. Have you ever stopped to consider underwear in the abstract? When you really dig into it, some shocking problems are raised. Underwear is something we all have to deal with. Everyone wears some kind of underwear. Even Indians wear underwear. Even Cubans wear underwear. The Pope wears underwear, I hope. The governor of Louisiana wears underwear. I saw him on TV. He must have had tight underwear. He squirmed a lot. Underwear can really get you in a bind. You've seen the underwear ads for men and women, so alike but so different. Women's underwear holds things up. Men's underwear holds things down. Or vice versa. Underwear is one thing men and women have in common. Underwear is all we have between us in the end. You've seen the three-color pictures with crotches and circles to show the areas of extra strength and three-way stretch, promising full freedom of action. Don't be deceived. It's all based on a two-party system, which doesn't allow much freedom of choice the way things are set up. America in its underwear struggles through the night. Underwear controls everything in the end. Take foundation garments, for instance. They're really fascist forms of underground government making people believe something but the truth, telling you what you can or can't do. Did you ever try to get around a girdle? Perhaps nonviolent action is the only answer. Did Gandhi wear a girdle? Did Lady Macbeth wear a girdle? Was that why Macbeth murdered sleep? And that spot she was always rubbing. 
Modern Anglo-Saxon ladies must have huge gill complexes. Always washing and washing and washing out damn spot. Underwear with spots, very suspicious. Underwear with bulges, very shocking. Underwear on clothesline, a great flag of freedom. Someone has escaped his underwear, maybe naked somewhere. Help! But don't worry, everybody's still hung up in it. There won't be no real revolution. And poetry's still the underwear of the soul. And underwear still covering a multitude of faults in the geological sense. Strange sedimentary stones, inscrutable cracks. If I were you, I'd keep aside an oversized pair of winter underwear. Do not go naked into that good night. And in the meantime, keep calm and warm and dry. No use stirring yourselves up prematurely over nothing. Move forward with dignity and invest. Don't get emotional, and death shall have no dominion. There's plenty of time, my darling. Are we not still young and easy? Don't shout. And you're listening to the Great American Underwear Hour on Our American Stories. When we come back, every year, people in New York City strip down to their underwear to ride the subway. All that and so much more coming up as we conclude the Great American Underwear Hour. This is Our American Stories. Standing in her underwear Looking down from a hotel room The nightfall will be coming soon This is Our American Stories And leave it to Jesse to find Tom Petty Saying the word underwear And now back to our executive underwear master Jesse Edwards If you're still listening to this broadcast, I'm sure you didn't wake up this morning expecting to know this much about underwear. And if you're just joining us, welcome to the Great American Underwear Hour, brought to you by Our American Stories. We've heard from one rich young American entrepreneur after another who went out and made millions by entering online subscription-based craft underwear sales. Hipster millennials sitting around air-conditioned offices from sea to shining sea, cashing in and chomping away massive returns from big underwear like Victoria's Secret, Hanes, and Fruit of the Loom. Out with the old and in with the new. Right? Well, not quite. You see, the world's first recyclable underwear is a new startup called ReUndies. How it works is quite simple. Order a pair of the world's most comfortable underwear, and they'll arrive faster than you can say sustainability. Wear them, live in them, be yourself in them. And then, when you're ready for a new pair, just stick them back in the package, slap that prepaid shipping label on it, and send them on back. You don't even have to wash them. That's right, Billy. And in fact, I think your package is arriving right now. I should probably point out that this underwear startup is completely fictitious. But that should tell you something. There are so many underwear startup companies in America right now that these people spend weeks of their time making this fake startup campaign ad. 
There are currently over 250 underwear startup company projects just on Kickstarter.com alone. Welcome to the golden age of underwear. But not all underwear is created equal. Not all underwear is fun and games. A lot of intriguing details you're about to hear that might have come out during a trial but didn't because the underwear bomber pleaded guilty. These agents say they don't often get a chance to interrogate a suicide bomber, especially one like this. Yes, we live in a day and age where underwear can take down an airplane. And they can even take down a congressman. Like former congressman from New York's 9th District, Anthony Weiner. When he was caught passing around pictures of himself in his underwear to various women online, he had this to say to Rachel Maddow. Look, I, I, we don't know f for sure. The photograph doesn't look f familiar to me, but a lot of people who have been looking at this stuff on our behalf are cautioning me that, you know, stuff gets manipulated, stuff gets, you know, you can, you can, you can change a photograph, you can manipulate a photograph, you can doctor a photograph. And so I don't want to say with certitude it maybe didn't start out being a photograph of mine and now looks as something different, or maybe it was something that was from another account. <laughs> that what we call a terrible lie. You know, underwear is kind of a funny thing. Some of us would rather be caught dead than to have pictures of us in our underwear going viral like disgraced former Congressman Anthony Weiner here. And then there are these people. Dozens stripped down to their underwear and it was all caught on camera. People gathered for the annual No Pants Subway Ride on the Hudson Yards 34th Street subway station. The movement started 16 years ago. It always brings tourists to the area. With temps in the 20s, and this year was certainly one of the coldest. But hey, that didn't stop the no pants party. This is my first time. I don't know. My, my, friend, my friend dragged me in this. She was like, you want to take pants off in the train? I was like, why not? Yeah, why not, right? Well, the event is also held in other major cities, including Boston, Sydney, Paris, and Shanghai. Now, one might think it would be illegal to walk around town in your skimpies, but it turns out that there are no real laws to speak of, at least on a federal level. In Flint, Michigan, however, city law states that low-riding pants that expose underwear is a Class B offense. There are some more obscure and unenforceable laws on the books regarding underwear across the states. In San Francisco, it's illegal to wash your car with used underwear. Nothing about washing your car with new underwear, though. In Cleveland, women are forbidden from wearing shiny leather shoes just in case men see the reflections of their underwear. In Minnesota, it is technically against the law to hang male and female underwear together on the same clothesline. And that is just the United States. In Thailand, it's illegal to leave the house without any underwear on. Saudi Arabia's feared morality police won't punish men who walk around in their underwear, but women still face imprisonment if they violate strict laws on women's dress codes. But back here in the States, good luck going online or driving downtown without seeing an ad or a billboard with someone posing seductively in a pair of tight-fitting designer underwear. One underwear company in particular has made people all hot and bothered on more than one occasion over the years, Calvin Klein. You know the ads, those black and white images, extremely attractive people posing with little to nothing at all. I always think of our clothes as being sensual and modern, but when you start showing the body, well then you can have some fun. And that's the man himself, Calvin Klein, an American fashion designer of Hungarian Jewish ancestry born in the Bronx, is currently worth about $720 million. I've always known from the time I was... I mean, honestly, about five or six years old, exactly what I wanted to do. My mother loved clothes, 
and she dressed us really well. And my grandmother made clothes for people. By the time it was time for high school, I knew it was going to be fashion. And then I knew I'd go on to a college that specialized in fashion as well and couldn't wait to get out into the industry. Like so many other entrepreneurs we hear from on this show, young Calvin Klein didn't want anybody telling him what to do. We also get to hear about his very first job. My father was a businessman and my parents discussed business all the time. I always had a sense that I would want to be the designer, but I'd want to be able to control what I was designing and not have the person who was manufacturing the product tell me what to do. On my first job, the man who hired me, he said, you could have a nice two or three million dollar business. And I thought to myself, I don't think so. Um, uh, I, I, I think I want to do something uh, bigger. Like any and every artist or musician, underwear designers like Calvin Klein must also find inspiration somewhere. I was inspired by the American woman who I thought was modern, young. She wanted a career, she wanted a family, she had a family. She did all of these things and she needed clothes that fit that lifestyle. Well, as it turned out, there were women all over the world that were doing the same thing. Back in the day, Calvin Klein found his inspiration with a young woman named Brooke Shields. One of the first commercials that we did, Brooke Shields, the camera moved very slowly across her body and then comes in on her face and she says, you know what comes between me and my Calvins? You want to know what comes between me and my Calvins? Nothing. Nothing. Then it was shocking. We were thrown off the air on television overnight. And next thing, front page of newspapers, full page of Brooke Shields, we got so much free publicity. And that was Calvin Klein, underwear royalty. And you're listening to the Great American Underwear Hour. As promised, we're now going to hear from an actual underwear model. Now calm down, calm down. We all gotta be adults about this now. Martha Hunt has been a Victoria's Secret angel since 2015. I am in crunch time right now. I'm really amping up the workouts leading up to the show. I would say about three weeks leading up to the show, we really amp it up. And we'll plan like private sessions with one another, which is really cute. And I think it's just so empowering to be a part of a girl group that, you know, we need to work out for work, but we also can enjoy doing it together. It's always a lot of fun working out with the girls. Oh, well, that was a bit underwhelming. Well, now we're going to learn about how your underwear can save your life with Dr. Oz. Do a lot of embarrassing things in the past, but this might be my most mortifying request yet. Today, I have asked everyone in our audience to bring in a pair of their underwear. Now, Dr. Oz will walk us through his underwear test, step by step. Let's begin. So question number one is, does your underwear have less elasticity than when you bought it? The answer, everybody, I want you all doing it up there, should be no. Because stretched out elastic means your butt is getting bigger. Next. Question number two. Is the backside more than three inches wide? Come on, turn your underwear around, stick in there. Backside three inches wide, everyone look in there. Right. The answer, the guys don't have to check. This is more for the women. 
The answer should be yes. I'm not going to touch that one. Next. Question number three. Everyone can check this out now. I want you all checking on yourselves. Is your underwear too tight? And the answer to this also should be no. All right, that one's easy. Nothing tight. Got it. Next. This is the final question. And for many of you, it will be the most important question and perhaps the most embarrassing one to look for. Does your underpants have any yellow stains? Oh, all right, stop. Stop. It's quite enough. Thank you, Dr. Oz. Oof. That escalated quickly. Well, I think that just about wraps up the Great American Underwear Hour. Boy, we've learned a lot about underwear today. From the humble beginnings as a loincloth in the Garden of Eden to the Chicago World's Fair of 1935, where Jockey was born. From the top five underwear sellers on Amazon to the top of the underwear industry itself, with the story of Spanx founder Sarah Blakely, who started it all with a $5,000 investment. From the age-old question of boxers versus briefs to underwear poetry, from bad to good, with the underwear bomber to the priceless underwear health tips from Dr. Oz. Yellow stains. We even heard from a Victoria's Secret underwear model. Not bad. On behalf of all of us here at Our American Stories, thanks for coming along with us on this crazy and magical journey that we will forever know as the Great American Underwear Owl. Sing-